Hey, good morning, Summit. Wow, it's great to see you guys and those who are joining at the other two campuses and then online across the world. Boy, that's scary. We're glad you're here. I want to talk today in our series about uh, one another, something very interesting. You know, we live in a world that is filled with universal cynicism and lots of targets we hit, the economy, leaders, colleagues, media, government, the president. We take shots at them. You name it, we find a target and we fire away at it. And there are good reasons sometimes that we question the conduct and motive of our leaders. We need to have the right to ask for greater responsibility and accountability and transparency from our leaders. But do we ask the same thing of ourselves? See, the strong feelings that cynicism brings, bitterness, hatred, frustration, easily flow through the veins of our country and it poisons us into a pessimistic view of life. The lenses of cynicism cause people to overreact sometimes, shooting other people that they disagree with, or cause us to uh, defame, post defaming messages on any of our social networks, however inaccurate they may be, or cause us to wince into autopilot whenever we feel threatened in some way, we automatically start becoming cynical. See, cynicism is fraught with unproductive feelings. It clouds our ability to have critical thinking. It saps our ability to make rational choices. And perhaps the worst of all, cynicism is the sharpest aspect of it, is it robs our present. We're unable to be creative, hopeful, vibrant, responsive because cynicism chokes out our ability to love. It always does. Even in the church. What do you mean even in the church? Yeah. So frequently in church, we wind up being opponents rather than brothers and sisters in Christ. It still influences us. So in the midst of all of this darkness, God wants you to know that he set up his kingdom to be a kingdom of light to reflect his love in the darkness. That he wants us to be salt to the world's decay and preserve what is good in life. That he wants us to bring hope to the hopeless and peace to those who are full of fear. In this series that we began this summer talking about loving one another or, or one another, we've asked this question over and over again. What does love require of me? And in answering that today, my hope is, is that you will say love requires me to be encouraging to other people. Let's talk about how. It's fast becoming a lost art the art of encouragement. We need it. <laughs> we thrive on it. Encouragement has a huge impact in our lives. 
Word of encouragement from a parent can change the life of a child. A word of encouragement from a spouse can change a marriage. A word of encouragement from a leader can help somebody live to their fullest potential. And the Bible knows this and expresses this. In Hebrews chapter 10, the Bible commends us to be aware of how we encourage others. Look at what it says. Let us hold tightly without wavering to the hope we affirm for God can be trusted to keep his promise. What's he talking about? In Hebrews 10, he's talking about what Jesus Christ has done for us in his death on the cross. It is the hope of salvation that we have. And because we have that hope, we can hold tightly to the promise of God that God loves us eternally, that he's not going to reject us. And then look at these words. Let us think of ways to motivate one another to acts of love and good works. People in our world need Jesus. They need love. They need to be affirmed. They're drowning in a world of cynicism and decay. We must be light to them. You see what it says? Let us think of ways to motivate each other to love and good works. And then he says this. I love this. And let us not neglect meeting together as some people do, but encourage one another, especially now that the day of his return is drawing near. The author of Hebrews is suggesting that we need each other. We need to be with each other. That's why we set you up into circle groups. That's why we encounter or encourage you to speak to each other, to get to know people. That's kind of a paradox because we open these doors and then open the outside doors and we say, go, and you do. That's fascinating to see how fast you go. And as you go by, we go, hey, good to see you. Hey, good to see you. You're gone. Find ways to encourage each other. This is what the scripture's talking about. Intentionally encourage each other. Because it says the days are getting harder and Christ is coming. I want to give you this definition. Hope this will help you understand. Encouragement is an expression to help someone have hope in Jesus even when life is rough. Because that's when we need it. When we're struggling in life, we need to know that there's hope for us. Regardless of whether you don't know him as your savior or whether you are a Christ follower, we all need this because days are tough sometimes in our life. So I want to ask three questions today. Why do we need encouragement? How do we encourage others? And when do we do it? Very quickly, why do we need encouragement? Well, folks, we live in a world that is by its very nature defensive. We are walled up people. We hide from each other. And it's because of the things that have happened to us in our life that we become so defended in life. That's a historical reality. That is truth. And it started in the Garden of Eden. Adam and Eve lived together with God on a daily basis. They walked with God. They talked with God, saw God, touched God, had that kind of personal relationship with him. There were no walls, no distance, no tension. 
It was authentic and real, their life in this garden experience. But when they sinned against God, they began absorbing consequences for their sin. And one of the sharpest consequences for the sin that we experience in our life is fear, the emotion of fear. They didn't have it before their sin, but it became apparent afterwards. We know it's so real because Adam's response immediately when he sinned was to flee and hide from God. He became full of fear. That's interesting that the all-knowing, all-seeing God, and we try to hide from it. (laughs) We do too, but God knows all things. And so in that garden comes the first question, and it came from the lips of God, and it was directed at Adam. And here's the first question of the Bible. Adam, where are you? This is what Adam responded to God. Listen to what he said. I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. There are three conditions, three things that you need to see about this. Adam said, I was afraid. He had a core emotion, and that core emotion was fear. As I've already said, it never happened until this moment where sin entered his life and it became a consequence. See, because before he walked with God, he, God was his creator. He had everything he needed. Listen to me. There were no marital squabbles. Can you believe that? That's hard to imagine. No fights, no problems. And those of you who are gardening your beautiful gardens this time of the year, let me tell you what their garden was like. They gardened without sweating, with no weeds. Can you imagine that? You can't even imagine that, can you? When I used to garden, whenever I went down a row with a tiller, I would come back and, are you kidding me? How many weeds there are? They come up out of everywhere, but not before this. There wasn't any problem. Food was perfect. His job was secure. He had purpose and meaning in his life. But then disorder and uncertainty and emotional stress and broken relationships and death began the process because of sin. All the perplexing questions about life came out of Adam's lips, and we ask the same thing today. Will life work out for me? Will I always feel rejected Can I make it on my own? Will my marriage last? The common denominator for all of these questions is fear. Fear in our lives. I think it's fascinating that the one commandment that God gives over and over again in the Bible, more than any other time, 365 times, God says, fear not. Over and over again. Because he knows this is our dilemma, our common problem in life. Why do we fear? We fear because as we encounter life, we begin rubbing up against a reality that we don't like, and that is this. We can't control everything. Life's running against us. And for some of us who are control freaks, we don't like that at all. We don't like that. It's beyond our control. 
What's fascinating to me is that every time that we fear and we can get some distance and look at why we fear, why we're having a problem with this fear, we gain an understanding that fear is impacting almost every decision that we have throughout our life. His common emotion was fear. Look at his common motivation. I'm not enough. I'm not enough. He says it this way. I was naked or naked. Here in the South, we just love that word, don't we? He realized his eyes were open. I'm not enough. I'm not adequate enough. I'm broken. His inadequacy. Fear comes from our profound awareness that we are broken, that something is missing, that something is wrong with us, that we are not as we should be. And that leads us to go get Botox. I can't believe this brow has lines in it. I have a solution for you. It's what I choose to do. Just eat. (laughs) All of us become aware of our inadequacies. We all have problems. And that awareness begins translating into our lives the moment we begin understanding that we have feelings and our feelings can become ideas. Then we start interpreting everything through the critical spirit that's inside our head, our inner voice that's always criticizing everything we do. The fear of exposure becomes a part of our life. If you really knew me, the fear of rejection then tricks in, then you wouldn't love me. And fear becomes like cancer cells in our body. They intensify and multiply in our life. Can we handle life? Does anyone really care about me? Will I make enough money to survive? How will my kids turn out? And over and over, what if, what if, what if? You see, the motivation begins spiraling for us that we're not enough. And then comes a strategy. His core strategy, Adam's was hide Hide from God. He chose fig leaves and a tree to hide behind. Not good idea, but that's the only thing he had. We have complex systems of avoidance. Oh my goodness. Satan embellishes this and is obliging to help you find ways you can hide how you feel inadequate. Money, fame, power, position, luxury, those are obvious. We got that. We know that's what we choose to hide behind. But there are more subtle things that happen to us, such as our unwillingness to look at our own accountability. We don't want to know about our blind spots. Our capacity to blame other people rather than really owning our own insignificance. Numbing out our fear of inadequacy and a thousand different addictions that we choose to just find some temporary freeze of our fear. These are the dilemmas that create, that are created by fear in our life. And we become 
a people that seek out shallow community, folks. We want to be around people that we don't have to be real with, that we can wear a mask or fake faces and just project what they need us to project so we don't become real. But deep inside us, inside your human heart is a desire. I wish people would love me for who I was, period. I wish I could be authentic. I wish I didn't have to fake it. I wish I didn't have to wear Spanx. <laughs> I wish I could be real. We desire this. It's deep within us to be real. We have a responsibility here at this church to restore troubled and hurting people. God called us to do that. People are hurting more deeply than we know and, how, and more often than we know. And they hurt even more than they are aware of. A personal relationship with Jesus Christ can bring them hope and freedom and peace in their life. And God has chosen you to be the vessel that communicates that love. What's our mission statement? Question. Oh, oh, breathe. To receive the love of Jesus and share the love of Jesus. That's our mission statement as a church. And you know what that means? God created the Summit Church to be a loving church. That's what we're designed to be. God wants us to be the voice of hope and confidence. We constantly need to look at people and ask ourselves, do they feel loved here? Are they accepted here? The people who are encountering our circle groups I know are weird. They're EGRs. You know what EGR is? Extra grace required. <laughs> if you don't know an EGR, guess what? It's you. <laughs> we are a church full of EGRs. And yet God wants us to love them, to provide hope for them. So here's the question that I have for you. Henry Drummond once said these words, and they've haunted me ever since I heard them. How many prodigals are kept out of the kingdom of God by the unlovely characters who profess to be inside the kingdom of God? How do we encourage people? We've discovered why. Because of their fear, because of their insecurities, and because they have this tendency to avoid. How do we encourage them? Paul has a hint for us. In Ephesians chapter 4, Paul says, Let everything you say be good and helpful so that your words will be an encouragement to those who hear them. Folks, words are powerful, powerful in our life. Many people live in utter disregard to the effect of words, their words on other people. Words were given by God as a gift to us. As a matter of fact, in the Gospel of John, John describes the creation like this in these words. 
In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So basically, John's telling us that Jesus Christ is the Word of God. And then it says this, the Word gave life to everything that was created. Do you see how phenomenal that is? That God's words are the most powerful thing. That by simply God speaking, God created. In a month, you're going to have a phenomenon that occurs very rarely in a lifetime. You're going to have an eclipse that passes across the United States. We're not actually in the target area, but you'll see some of it. In order for you to be in total eclipse, you have to go to the beach in South Carolina. Okay, let's get a bus. But here in this area, you're going to see it. And as you see it, my challenge to you is that you remember this. God spoke that into existence. God used this word, light, and there was light. That's it. That's how he created Mars, that's how he created the moon, that's how he created the solar system with one word, light, and there was light. How powerful are those words? And folks, listen to me. You on this earth have that ability to use words that can create life or create death. No other animal has this ability. God made you in his image. We have the same ability. What are you talking about, Pastor Ike? Well, folks, we have the ability to use our tongue. The Bible says the tongue is a, uh, is, has the power of life and death. With our words, we can create beautiful dreams or we can destroy everything around us. Depending on how we use them, we can be set free or we can be enslaved for a lifetime with our words. So your human mind is like a fertile field. It longs for something, some seed to be planted in so that it can develop and grow. And the Bible says there's two things, two seeds in your life, thoughts, words. They either bring death to you and your mind begins decaying or they bring life to you and you flourish. Let me talk about this just a second. We can speak death words into our own life or other people's lives. Death words, words that bring back nothing but wounds and chaos. I recall the story of a little girl singing at the top of her voice in her room to her dolls. And she was joyously singing, happy, playing with them and listening to them sing back to her as only her mind could hear. But as she sung those beautiful notes, her mother was in the next room in her bedroom suffering with a migraine headache and she came in and interrupted the little girl and with these words she said, stop your screeching, it is horrible. And for a lifetime, she never sang again. Her mother didn't mean to wound her. 
Her mother was hurting, but the death power of her words crushed that little girl's spirit. Maybe that's happened to you. People have spoken death words over you. We have the power to speak life words, words that bring hope and light to people's lives. I hope as one of your pastors, you've had people in your life that speak life words to you. My nanny spoke life words to me, beautiful grandmother that she was. I would come up to her and I would go, Nanny, I'm just a chubby little boy. And she would say, honey, you're just husky. <laughs> and my mother would speak life words to me whenever I was discouraged and didn't understand why things were happening to me the way they were. Coaches in athletics and professors in graduate school spoke words of admonishment and correction that helped me shape my life. My lovely wife, my beautiful children, adult children, grandchildren, and now a great grandchild, speak words into my life. My coworkers are so generous in their kind comments to me. These are words of life. I hope you have people that can do that for you. And then there are other words, shallow words, words that we speak sometimes when we have no meaning behind them. We just say them. Hey, good to see you. <laughs> I don't really mean it. Hey, let's go get something to eat sometime. Can we do that? What about next week? Uh, we don't really mean these things. Or at least that's what they come across to some people. They lack the depth of meaning. Carefully use your words. Let them be sincere and honest. Let me give you an example of what happened. I was a therapist 30 years ago in a psychiatric hospital. I know, it's hard to believe you're that old, Pastor Right? But when I was doing therapy on Unit 1, Adult Psychiatric Unit 1, um, doctor on Unit 4, that was our uh, unit that they evaluated some of our older people to see how demented, how much dementia had been going on in their life or whether they've had cognitive impairment. Doctor wrote an order for one of the dear ladies there to come to our group therapy one morning. And so I went and got her. Her name was Miss Ruby. Miss Ruby had a hat on and gloves. She was an old Southern genteel woman, about four foot tall. So here I am helping Miss Ruby scoot over to unit one. She sits down in the group and we start group therapy. In the middle of that group therapy, one of the patients had been explaining about some bad news they had received about the death of someone in their family. And they were distraught. And so I spoke words of empathy. That's what I meant when I said, bless your heart. And Miss Ruby's eyes lit up. And she looked at me and she said, sir, are you being disingenuous with your words? And I said, no, ma'am, I don't think so. But thank you for joining the conversation. And then on the way back to unit four, I talked to her about what did you mean by being disingenuous with my words? And she said this, Mr. Patterson, I was born and raised 
in Charleston, South Carolina. And here in the deep south, whenever anyone says, bless your heart, what they're really saying is, you're so dead gum stupid. <laughs> My first lesson in shallow words. And so I wrote on her chart, no cognitive impairment noted. <laughs> the Bible teaches us to guard our words, to use them. That is how we encourage people or how we bring death to them. So one final question, when do we encourage people? I want to give you this challenge. Encouragement occurs when opportunities are seized rather than created. You don't have to set an appointment to some, with somebody to encourage them. You don't have to call me up and say, Pastor Ike, I'm, my husband needs your encouragement. I'm going to set an appointment with you so you encourage him. <laughs> you do it. The opportunities are seized by us to share encouragement with people. There are two conditions that God wants you to share your words of encouragement. One is this. They need to be prompted by love. See, you remember me saying that's one of the difference between us as believers in Jesus Christ and the rest of the world who does not know what love is. We know what love is. That's a Forrest Gump quote, by the way. <laughs> and it's like exactly as the way God intended for us to do. Jesus said, Father, I love them as you have loved them, and I want them to prove they are my disciples by their love for others. So are your words prompted by love? Christianity is about involvement, folks. That's what it's about. God came from heaven, became a man, lived among us as a man, died on a cross, a sinful death that was not his own because he was sinless. That's what love is. That's what involvement is. And when Jesus ascended back into heaven, he gave us a commission as his church. He said this, laugh with those who laugh. Weep with those who weep. Encourage and restore those who are walking away from me. Strengthen the weak. That's his commission to us. Our words come from a place of genuine love for God and people. I want to say this. Rick Warren said it, but I'm going to borrow it. People don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. Then you have a voice with them. Encouragement is not a technique to be mastered. It is a sensitivity that we pray for to be aware. And here's a second condition. Words are directed toward fear, toward whatever they're struggling with. Often the solution that people with fear have or long for is just this, somebody understands me. They hear my hurt. They allow me to speak. They get in the coffin of my pain with me. They're willing to invest their life to lift up my head, 
People hurt everywhere, folks. Life crushes all of us. Problems overwhelm our world, but an encourager it comes beside people and does, says two things. When you hurt, you're not alone. It is normal to hurt, and you can have hope. God loves you. That's what an encourager does. Now, we have lots of resources in life care, and y'all know that our department is set up to be able to help you. If you have a question and you want to know how you can receive some help in our life care ministry, we have volunteers in the lobby of all of our campuses that will be glad to talk with you right after the service. But I want to say this. Listen to me now. Here comes the grandpa. You ready? We can't do it all. What are you doing for hurting people? Oh, but pastor, I, you don't understand. Hurting people cry. They snot all over me. I'm not a counselor. You're absolutely right. Not asking you to be a counselor. Just be a friend. Just spend time with them. They live next door to you. They're in the cubicle next to you at work. They're on the treadmill running beside you. They're hurt. They're broken. They want to know, is this all there is to life? Just look at them. Smile at them. Be open and sensitive. That's what it means to be an encourager. Share words of love, words that are directed toward their pain. Let's pray together. God, for your power and your wisdom and your might, we are so thankful for the fact that you are the great encourager. We're so grateful for the way that you have lifted our heads in all of the troubles that we have encountered and the way that you have restored our feet on solid ground. God, we rejoice over your care in our life. God, we know we're called to be people who reflect your love, your hope, your confidence to a broken world. How daunting is the task. For many of us, we think it's impossible. But you have been the speaker of life in our life, and that's what you want us to do to others. Share our words from a heart of love, directed toward their fear. Help us not be afraid to take steps to begin bringing those that we know back into hope in their life. Enrich us and empower us. Help us to do what love requires us to do. In your name we pray, amen.